and amen. We'll go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. And I'd like to uh, begin our time this morning by mentioning a survey that was published recently by the World Economic Forum. And uh, the survey was actually about gender inequality. And the survey revealed that actually gender equality is getting worse, it's not actually getting better. And for those of you who are not familiar with the World Economic Forum, uh, they publish all kinds of results every year, and one of the studies that they do is every year they compare men and women across four key categories, health, education, economy, and politics. And the World Economic Forum said earlier this month, they said gender equality is in retreat for the first time since we started tracking the issue in 2006. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of sort, some of the things that they found alarming, some of the, uh, the themes that they found alarming about the disparaging between men and women, first of all, the survey revealed globally, the average salary per year for a man is about 20000 For a woman, it's about 11000 So across the globe, men make about double the amount that women do annually. Also, the average workday for a man is about nine and a half hours. Average workday for a woman, about 14 hours globally. So, yeah, I know, wow, right? I think the extra time is spent in the bathroom getting ready for work, but... No, I'm just kidding, just kidding, just playing there. I'm, I, I don't get in trouble, I know. She's in here today. Should have pulled that when she was hiding back in the nursery. But um, women work a lot harder. They get paid half as much. They work a lot harder. And perhaps the most alarming stat was this. When a job is open in a management position... Let's say there's a leadership position in, in a company, in a corporation, in a country. And you've got a man and a woman with the exact same experience, exact same education, exact same qualifications, vying for the same job. A man will actually get the job two times out of three. A man has about twice as much opportunity to get the job as a woman does. 36% to 64%. So as James Brown said, it's a man's world. It's a man's world. Now, before you think that the figures are skewed because of all those Muslim countries out there, you know, that oppress women, where they can't drive, they can't vote, they have to wear a full suit when they leave the house. Before you think that, you think America is like this utopia? I want to remind you of something very, very alarming that I found in this study. I looked it up. America actually ranks 49th in gender equality, 49th. And we were actually ranked behind countries like Rwanda and Mozambique and South Africa where it's not safe for a woman to walk down the street by herself. We're actually behind them. And I know so often we think this is America. We've get, we're getting it right. We're actually leading the way. America is actually one of the few advanced countries that still does not mandate giving a woman maternity leave when she gets pregnant. Woman gets pregnant, it's like, hey, have fun, Sniggles. We're going to give your job to a man while you're gone one of the few advanced countries in the world that does that. And so the United States is actually not leading the way in gender equality. We're actually one of the only countries in the world that's actually going backwards. At the current rate, men and women rights will never match up. They'll never be equal. And so the U.S. is not leading the way in gender equality. We're actually getting worse. We live in a sexist culture. I mean, we see it every day in the news. We see women coming out as being oppressed. We see violence against women, but I think, you know, we have this misogyny that's so deeply entrenched in our culture that we don't even realize that we're chauvinistic. I mean, a man could be stuck in traffic, 
going 25 miles an hour, and there's eight car lengths backed up. And we're like, we're sitting there, we're like, come on, slowpoke. Come on, so you, know, you know where I'm going with this too, because you start picturing in your mind what the person looks like that's up there backing everyone up. You know, you know, you know in your mind, you're like, must be a woman up there, you know? Because women can't drive, right? It's a popular con- misconception, right? And we think if there was a man up there, we could all get where we're going. That's what you people think, you know? And it just comes out, it oozes out of us, this misogyny. And, and, and we have these ingrained, preconceived notions about genders. And here's the facts. 80% of men cause car wrecks. Do you know that? Men are 80% more likely to get in a car wreck than a woman. They have higher insurance premiums. They kill people more often. I mean, but so often we're like, you know what? Women drivers are the problems with the roads. They're not. They actually keep people safe. But we slide in this kind of like misogynistic thinking so easily And we have this idea in our minds, whether we say it or not, especially as men, we have this idea that if men could only rule everything and be in charge of everything, then everything would be great. And I want to tell you something. The opposite is actually true. The opposite is true. The sobering reality about sexism and exalting one gender over another is it actually weakens everybody. And and this is not conjecture or or anything else. This is biblical fact. This is a truth that's found way back in the Bible, in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we read the account of how God created the world and everything in the world. You know, and God creates the first man, Adam, puts him in the garden. And he puts him in the garden to tend it and to keep it. And he says, listen, here's your garden. This is the entire world. It all belongs to you. Shovel over there, wheelbarrow over there. Tend it and keep it. And then God steps back and observes And God observes Adam working in the garden, and he notices something. And he says something very interesting in Genesis 2.18. He says, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. In other words, Adam wasn't getting the job done. There was something that was lacking in this perfect being in a perfect environment. This is the first thing ever in history that God looked down and said, you know what, that's not good. Everything else up until that time had been good, very good. But this is the first thing that's sort of inadequate. It's not quite complete. And so God looks down and says, you know what Adam needs? He needs a helper. And so God creates Eve to be Adam's helper. Now we have to be careful here because this is where we get into trouble. Because it's easy for us to read that word helper and think that Eve is sort of like this subordinate creature that God creates to sort of minister to Adam while Adam ministers to God. I mean, think about it. The word helper, it's not very flattering. You know, I mean, a lot of men, this is my help me, you know, and she's like on a leash. You know, it's like, that's not very flattering terminology. So often we think of helper that way in the Bible. And so we picture Eve as Adam's helper and we sort of view her like a gopher on a construction site. Y'all know what a gopher is? Anyone know what a gopher is? I've been doing a lot of renovations at my house, and I've discovered that I'm a gopher, okay? A gopher is someone that has no real skill at all, okay? They have no construction skills. They're just there to fetch supplies and food for the people that are really doing the work. And so, you know, the last month, I've been a gopher for Bill and Terry and Al, and they do all the real work, and I go fetch their lunch and get their hammer and everything else for them, okay? And if I cut something, they have to come fix it, you know, is what happens, because I'm a train wreck. But I'm a gopher. I go fetch things. But that's how we picture Eve, I think, when we see that word helper. We think Eve is a gopher, and she, God creates her with an apron on and a broom in her hand, right? 
And she's just there to get Adam a beer or his hammer or whatever he needs because she's there to help him as he serves God. But that's actually not what the word helper means at all. The word helper in, in Hebrew, it's actually the word ezer. Ezer. And the Net Bible, the translators of the Net Bible, explain that word in this way. The word helper here does not have the idea of someone in a subordinate role, but rather someone who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Don't think of Eve, don't think of women as these subordinate creatures who minister to men as men do all the really important work. View women as complementary creatures made in the image of God who come alongside men and help fulfill the creation mandate. That's the idea behind the word helper here. It's this indispensable companion that comes alongside men and empowers them. And they work together. They're complementary. Men empower women. Women empower men. And that is why so often in Scripture, God is actually called our Ezer, our helper. I mean, check out Psalm 54. David says this, Behold, God is my helper. He's my Ezer. That's not referring to a subordinate creature, subordinate role. God's not our lackey. He's not our gopher. David says, God's my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. Who has, who's the only person that can sustain our soul? God. David says, God does something for me that I cannot do for myself. He is weak where I, excuse me, he is strong where I am weak. That's exactly the idea behind Genesis chapter 2. A helper is someone with their own unique skill set who comes alongside and empowers us. And that means God created women to supply what men lack. Let me say it another way. When, when God, and I know it's going to be hard to get amens this morning. I get it, okay? Let me put it another way. When God created mankind, okay, and he gave mankind this tremendous task of keeping and tending the world, one gender was inadequate. I mean, God could have created a world with all dudes, okay? He could have, all men, right? Adam and Steve, right? They could have done that. And he could have populated the world with all men. But that would not have fulfilled the creation mandate. That would not adequately reflect the glory and dignity of God. Because as Genesis chapter 1 says, check the verse here, it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And here it is, male and female, he created them. Both men and women reflect and image the glory of God. And so in a world with only men, God's glory and God's image is not adequately revealed and reflected. And so it takes two distinct complementary genders to fully reflect the image of God. Now, this is super important. This is not just like a history Bible lesson. This is important because we have to wrap our minds around this. Because if there isn't a healthy mix of both men and women in prominent positions in our society, we're going to be weaker overall. We're going to be weaker. And Genesis 2.18 clearly teaches that countries where women are oppressed or marginalized are weaker countries. Businesses where women are marginalized are weaker businesses. Families where women are run roughshod over are weaker families. And importantly, churches where women are oppressed or marginalized or held down or ignored. Those are weaker churches because of it. And so the more we exalt women to their proper place, the more we restore the dignity that they deserve 
as human beings made in the image of God, the more we all flourish, the more we all prosper, you know? If we want society, and especially the United States, to be this awesome country, we need to start thinking more about gender equality for women. We need to think more about that. And more importantly, we shouldn't just pursue women's rights because it's good for business. More importantly, we should seek the flourishing of women because that's what Jesus would do. You know, you talk about what would Jesus do? He would seek the honor and the dignity and the privilege for women. And that's exactly what our text teaches us this morning. And we're starting a brand new series this morning called No Second Class Kingdom Citizens. Because Mark chapter 7 is all about Jesus teaching us one important lesson, one overarching theme, and it's this. There's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. There is no subordinate people in the kingdom of God, unless you're talking about angels, because we're going to rule angels, Paul says. But men and women are equal. They're totally equal. And Jesus is teaching us in Mark chapter 7 that Christianity is this religion of inclusion, not exclusion. It's a religion of reconciliation, not separation. And standing aloof from people, from other genders, other ethnicities, other tax brackets. Jesus came and preached a gospel for all peoples. And the kingdom of God is for everyone. And so Mark chapter 7 has one overarching theme. And it's there's no second class kingdom citizens. And uh, the first group of people that we see Jesus restoring dignity and honor to in Mark 7 is women. That's what we see. Look at verse 24. Let's pick it up. It says, and from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house. And he didn't want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Just let these words sink in, okay? He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now let's just pump the brakes, stop right there. We've got a railroad here. We've got to stop, okay? Because I have to give you a little bit of background from the Bible, because if we're not careful here, we're going to think that Jesus himself is guilty of being a male chauvinist. I mean, right here in the Scripture, Jesus calls a grown woman a dog which is not very safe to do, okay? That's kind of dangerous. I have learned everything there is to know about women in my 39 years of living, but calling a woman a dog is not safe. I know it's not a good idea. Not a good idea at all. In fact, if you're single and uh, you're a male and you want to be married one day, three things you should never say to women. Three things, okay? This is for free. You look tired. (laughs) Not a good idea. You're still hungry? That's the second thing. Don't say that. And third, you remind me of a dog I had when I was younger. Don't, ne- never want to call a woman a dog, okay? But Jesus calls this woman a dog. And the million-dollar question is, why? Why does Jesus call her a dog? What's going on here? Is Jesus some kind of like male chauvinist? No, he's not. Jesus is actually using what's here a play on words. He's using a play on words. And it unfortunately does not come across very clear uh, in, in English, Okay. And in biblical times, um, if you were a Jew, you would refer to all non-Jewish people as, as dogs. You know, the Jews were these clean people who went to church on Sundays and you know, wore a suit and had their Bible. And if you weren't a Jew, you were unclean. You were part of the unwashed masses. And, and so basically, they called all non-Jewish people um, dogs. 
They're mongrels. They're unclean. They're unwashed. They're dirty. They're wild animals. And so Jesus is sort of like following the cultural slang of his day by calling this woman a dog. But Jesus doesn't use the normal word for dog here in Hebrew. What he uses here is a slightly different word. It's a little bit different. And the word that Jesus uses here is the word for actually a house dog or like a lap dog. And the best way I can sum this up is with the movie Lady and the Tramp, okay? In biblical times, the Jews would call you a kuon. You're a street dog. You're this wild, scabby, flea-ridden animal that kind of like runs the streets, okay? You're in a Sarah McLaughlin commercial. That's what they would call non-Jewish people, Gentile people. They would call you a kuon, a street dog. But Jesus doesn't call this woman a kuon. He actually calls her a kunarion, which actually, it means a foo-foo dog. It means a house dog, a lap dog. These are the kind of dogs that like sleep in people's beds at night, right? And they carry around in their purse. That's the word that Jesus uses here. And so when you get one of those Christmas cards next month and it has a picture of a family with a dog and a sweater vest, just think kunarion. That's what it is, right? You learned a word there. Kunarion. That's the word that Jesus uses here. He calls her a little lap dog, a little foo-foo dog. And so listen, Jesus isn't mocking this lady at all. He's not running her down. He's actually mocking the male chauvinistic culture of his day with this play on words because this would have been a very endearing way to address this woman. Very endearing, very compassionate. Because by calling her a house dog and not a wild dog, a homeless dog, he's basically saying, you have a master, you have a home, you're greatly cared for. I mean, every time you see a dog in a sweater vest, that's a, that's a greatly cared for dog, right? And so Jesus calls her a kunarion. And listen, this would have caught everyone off guard, everyone, for two main reasons. First of all, because Jesus is calling an unclean Gentile, Syrophoenician person, a pagan, he's calling them a cute little foo-foo dog. But second of all, this would have been alarming because Jesus is actually associating with a woman. And in those days, like rabbis, they did not even talk to women at all. In fact, in those days, women were, were perhaps more marginalized and oppressed than they are today. I mean, women couldn't vote in biblical times. They couldn't testify in a court of law in biblical times. In fact, a lot of people in Bible times, actually, they considered women to be the property of men who shouldn't even leave the house. I mean, the Jews believe this. Uh, in something called the Talmud, if we have the next reference there, brother. In something called the Talmud, which is sort of like the purpose-driven life for Jews, like an extra-biblical book that kind of guides their thinking, this is, what it, this is what one rabbi wrote in, in the Talmud. He said, it is the way of a woman to stay at home. It's the way of a man to go out into the marketplace. This is how Jews felt about women. The Jewish nation felt about women. In fact, every morning, a devout Jewish man would pray this prayer, this verbatim. He would say, I thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Being a woman back in those days, it was like a social curse. And listen, the, the, the degradation of women had gotten so bad, so terrible at this time, that even the thinking of the disciples was infected by the culture. Because we know in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, this is how Jesus' disciples refer to this woman. 
They came to Jesus and begged him, saying, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. He's like, they're, they're like, Jesus, you've got to send this lady away because she's getting in the way of our ministry. She keeps asking us for help. Can you get rid of her so we can get on with our mission? All of society, even the Jewish people, even God's chosen people who were there to actually point the way to God and what God desired, even they had so oppressed women that everyone had missed the boat on what it meant to treat women. And so all of society, even God's people, were giving this representation of women that was not true to the Bible. Because women were created, as we saw at the beginning, in the image of God. And when you read through the Old Testament, you discover women participating in all sorts of tasks that clearly, you know, are okay for them to participate in. You know, things that have historically been attributed to only men, in the Old Testament, God reveals, reveals women participating in those activities. I mean, things like working outside the home. Some people teach women can't work outside the home. It's very clear in the Old Testament women that work outside the home. Or engaging in hard manual labor, serving in leadership roles, or even leading worship in church. You see women doing all these things in the Old Testament. And yet, in New Testament times, things had so devolved and so declined that women were basically, they were treated like second-class citizens, even by the Jewish people. And by the time Jesus walked the earth, women had been so oppressed that even in the Jewish temple, when you came to church on Sunday, women had their own room to worship in. It was actually called the Court of Women. And they were sent into there, and they weren't allowed to pray publicly when they went outside, they had to actually be veiled. They had all these oppressive rules to govern the rights of women. And so Jesus comes as not only our Savior, but this revolutionary who came to actually restore the created order of things and actually restore the created dignity for all people, especially women. Especially women. And so he came to take back control from this oppressive male regime. And the way he goes about Teaching and overturning the cultural biases and misconceptions is this. He extends the offer of salvation to this pagan, Gentile, single mom. That's the way he does it. He uses this play on words to draw out this woman's faith. Doesn't call her an unclean dog, calls her a foo-foo dog, and she seizes the opportunity and answers him. Look at what she says to him in the next verse here. She says, yes, Lord. She's agreeing with him. She's not offended. That he calls her a foo-foo dog. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, I, I am a foo-foo dog. But if I'm a foo-foo dog, then I have a master. You are my master. I don't need a full, full meal. All I need is a few crumbs from you. Just a few crumbs from you will actually be enough to heal my daughter. That's all I need. She seizes this opportunity that Jesus has offered her, and she runs with it. And listen, this, this is miraculous faith. In fact, this is the only time in the entire gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, the only time that Jesus is ever called Lord, Master, and it's by a woman. Mark is teaching us something very profound here about the rights and the dignity of women. Because her reaction is completely different from the Pharisees' reaction. They thought they were too good for Jesus. 
There's no way they're going to agree that they, they need a Savior or they need a Master. No. They were going to tell Jesus how it ought to be done. And yet this woman confesses in humility, I am a foo-foo dog. I'm going to take my rightful place under the table. But I'm telling you this. Aren't I do the crumbs? You're my Master, and I belong to you, and I have a home. That's exactly what this text is revealing. And friends, saving faith is clearly displayed here because the only qualification for salvation is a recognition of your unqualification. That's all it is. It's a recognition, basically a confession. I, I am, I'm a foo-foo dog. I'm, an, I'm, I'm a dog. And that is what this woman does. She confesses, I'm a dog. You're my master. Help me. And Jesus honors her amazing faith. Check this out. Verse 29. And he said to her, for this statement, salvation is by faith alone. We confess with our mouths. For this statement, not because of your works, not because of your deeds, for this statement, you may go your way. The demons left your daughter. Faith has triumphed over this oppressive society that treated women like second-class citizens. And Jesus defies the status quo. And he honored this pagan Gentile, Gentile woman's faith and restored to her the creation dignity that God has bestowed upon all people, especially women. And, and this text clearly teaches that there's no such thing as a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. Now, here's where it gets sticky. Because we're called to apply this text. The interpretation is easy. The application is a little more difficult because God has not just left us here to preach the gospel. God has left the church here to be instruments and agents of cultural change. I mean, people should come to church and look into the church and look at our families. They should look into our dining rooms and our homes, and they should see women being treated with dignity and honor. They should see that. We should mirror that and model that. We should not be all rhetoric. We should not just have the theology. We should also have the life practicality. And so we need to, to make sure that we are not in the place of, of oppressing and marginalizing women in the church. Now the question this morning is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we go about empowering women in the church and treating them with the proper dignity that they deserve? Now listen, I have to confess, this part scared me on how to apply this text because I'm a man and I have my own ideas. And chances are that my ideas aren't the ones that women have. Let's just be honest, Okay. When men are like, there's a problem, women need to be treated fairly, and I've got all the solutions, that's a problem, okay? It's a problem. So I, I talked to women when I was preparing this series, and um, I got a lot of resources. I mean, I mean too many to, to list. I mean, this should have been like a full-blown series, all the stuff that I discovered. I didn't want to come out of my house or preach this morning, um, because there's a lot of blind spots, folks, a lot of blind spots. Um, but hopefully this will start a dialogue in our church. But out of all the resources that, that, that I read and, and, and perused, uh, I think there's perhaps one article that, you know, if I could just share with you this morning, one article that, that maybe encapsulates the main brunt of a lot of the, the, the places where we miss it in the church towards women. And it was written by uh, Jen Wilkin. And it's called Three Female Ghosts That Still Haunt the Church. Jen Wilkin says these are perhaps the three biggest ways that the church still whiffs when it comes to gender equality, okay? And she's got some ideas how we can get better. First of all, she said this, we need to stop viewing all women as usurpers who are discontent with being women. Let's close in prayer right now. <laughs> yeah, I think probably this hits the nail on the head in, in, in my experience because I know this, in conservative churches like ours, 
I mean, we believe in male headship here. We believe in male headship. We believe that God has given men to be the primary authority figures in marriage and in church governance. Those two areas. But beyond that, we tend to apply that to every scenario in the world. Every nook and cranny, we tend to think men need to run that and that and that and that. And you know what? That even creeps into the church and what we allow women to do in the church. And so oftentimes, we'll go to church and we think we're doing a good job because we only let women serve in the nursery. Or if they do teach, they can teach other women and children, but not, not any men, right? And yet in the Bible, there's only one role. There's only one role that's reserved exclusively for men in the church, and that's the role of an elder or a pastor. That's it. Everything else is fair game. Everything else we should seek to, to encourage women to pursue and exercise their gifts and their strengths. But I think sometimes in the church, we get scared if a woman is a little too ministry-minded, a little too ambitious. We're like, you know what? She's rebellious. Her husband's probably spineless. I don't know about that, you know? We think that way. I mean, heck, even if she has an extroverted personality, you know? If she's from, like, you know, I, I don't know, another country where they're like, it got some flavor to them, you know, a little bit. We're like, whoa, she's, she's just out there. She's going to take over. We're so afraid of a woman exercising any kind of preferences or opinions or, or, or even try to fill a ministry role that we sort of shut all women's ministry down. And uh, we need to look for opportunities to encourage women in our midst. We should. I mean, we have a lot of examples here. I mean, just in this church, we have Melissa. We have Patty Parks in Ireland. I mean, it, it's a fact that women take longer to get fully funded when they're in ministry. They're the last ones to receive 100% support. And when times get tight for a family, they usually cut ties with women first. Women they're supporting first. They have a hard time raising their support. We should be a covering for them. It should be a total covering for them. We should seek to encourage them and offer words of, of encouragement and hope and prayer when we see them because they're stepping out in faith. They're stepping out against the tide to do something that a lot of women aren't doing. And they're trying to lead the way, lead by example. I mean, you, you guys saw Lauren and Abby up here. We haven't announced this here yet, but Abby is actually going to lead worship at Grace Life Beachside. Stand up, Abby. Where you at, girl? Her and Abby, or excuse me, her and Lauren, I mean, they did a phenomenal job this morning. That was the first time that she has ever led here in worship. First time ever. And she did a great job. And we want to see women flourish in their gifts. She's got a beautiful voice. Lauren's backing her up amazingly. But we want to see women use their gifts and be powerful agents of change for the glory of God. Because think about it. In a church, the second most important position behind the preaching pastor for that morning is actually the worship leader. The worship leader. That's the second most visible personality in that church. And when you walk into our church at Beachside, we want to communicate that we value women, especially young women. They can do things too in the church. But we need to pray for Abby and Lauren and undergird them and encourage them because they did a great job this morning. It's not easy to do to get up here and lead. It's terribly frightening. It's hard. We should follow in the footsteps of Jesus who, who basically went against the tide of like a male-dominated society. And you know what Jesus did? I mean, he, he just, he defied the status quo everywhere he went. I mean, think about this. The first witnesses to see Jesus resurrected were women who couldn't vote. Their testimony wasn't to be believed. If they told you something, it's like, I don't know about that. I got to wait till a man tells me the same thing. Jesus revealed himself to women first. They were the first evangelists. They were the first ones to see him resurrected. 
By the time Peter and John got to the tomb, women had already been there and left working their 14-hour day, okay, by the time they got around to it. And so Jesus defied cultural norms, and he placed, he placed all the results in the hands of God. He said, I'm going to honor the creation design. I'm going to entrust women with really important things to do. And even though this is a male-dominated society, I'm going to leave, God, I'm going to leave the results to God. I'm going to trust God with the results. That's how Jesus led. We should do the same thing because every ambitious, ministry-minded woman in the church is not rebellious, okay? She just wants to do something, is all that means. That's the first thing Jen Wilkins says we can get better at. Second of all, she said this. We need to stop viewing every woman as a temptress, as a Jezebel, right? Now, this, this, is, this is something that's epidemic, I think, because, you know, we live in a day, every single, you know, every single week we see a pastor that fell, he ran away with the secretary, you know, he ran off with this woman, that woman, the other woman. And so, Wilkin points out that we are so afraid and we're so concerned about sexual temptation and being above reproach that we actually end up viewing all women as sexual predators. And when that happens, she says, we actually end up treating them less than human. Our interactions with them become very aloof and cold because we're so afraid that we're going to cross some line because we, we sort of have this idea like every woman that wants to do anything in the church or wants to communicate with a man is somehow a temptress. And she says, it causes us, this preoccupation with ritual purity and not, you know, not falling into sin, she said, this causes us to do really silly things. She said, like, first of all, like, CCing her spouse on every email correspondence you have with her. And every time you send an email to a woman, you see her, you know, her husband, her family, her grandma, you know, just want you to know there's a meeting tomorrow at three, you know, it's like everyone has to know. She says, or you feel compelled to use safe and formal phrases to her, like, make sure to tell your husband I said hello, you know, or many blessings on your ministry and family. You're always kind of including the fact that you remember she has a husband. She says, we also avoid prolonged eye contact. This, this, this is kind of a, a funny one, but I have a friend that went to school up in North Florida. And they have this really interesting policy. They don't let men and women walk on the same sidewalk, and they don't let them stare in each other's eyes because they actually, they actually call it visual intercourse if they do that, okay? It's a real, I didn't make this stuff up. It's in a handbook, and it's like that big, all right? When you make a handbook, it's usually bigger than the Bible. But uh, um, they have that rule. That's another thing that Jen Wilkins says. We, we, avoid, we avoid eye contact. It's like you're darting everywhere. She says, we hesitate to offer any kind of physical contact to a woman even if she's in crisis. It's like we're so afraid to get touchy-feely that we just kind of like you're in a counseling appointment and the tears start flowing and you sort of like, you just push the box of Kleenex over, you know? That's what you do. Because nothing communicates Christ's life, love, and compassion more than pushing a cardboard box across the table, right? It's like, you must be sent by Jesus. He pushes it over and smiles, you know? It's true. It's like we're not going to get up and hug that person because we're so afraid it's going to be misconstrued that we treat women like these inanimate objects, you know? I, I remember 10 years ago, I was, uh, yeah, I was in seminary. I just started and uh, greatly um, influenced by, by older men in the ministry. This one pastor got up and started preaching, and he said at one point, he said, I made a resolution this year. He said, I'm not giving any more side hugs to women. Excuse me, I'm not giving any more full frontal hugs to women. He said, I'm only giving side hugs. That was his resolution for the, for the year, Okay. That, that was, and I remember everyone in the crowd was like, hey, man, that's godly. Oh, yeah, they were going crazy for it. And I remember thinking, this is good. I got to take notes on it. This is amazing, you know? 
And it sounded so impressive to me. It did. It sounded amazing. But, but like a few years later, after reflecting upon it and thinking about it, especially, you know, reflecting upon how, how some people, they just don't side hug, okay? They bear hug you, man. They run up and just bam, you know, and you can't get out of it, you know? Um, but I reflected upon it and I thought, you know what? That's an extremely childish way to view relationships between men and women. That's so childish. I mean, that's the way that people act in, like in middle school. It's the view like every woman is like this cougar who's on the prowl, you know, like, and you don't want to give them any kind of attention because if you do, it could lead to bad things. But so often we fall into these kind of behaviors and it makes us very cold and aloof in our relationships. And I have to, I have to admit, I heard so many warnings as a young, like, seminarian and, and young pastor. I heard so many warnings about pastors who fell into sin. That, that basically it's jacked up the way that I even think about relationships between men and women. I, I'm t- I don't even know how to respond sometimes. I don't. I confess, as the pastor, I don't know. A, a year ago, the single mom was here with two kids. She was visiting for a few weeks. She needed a ride home. She didn't have a car. She asked me for the ride. She goes, can you give me a ride home? And I'm like, well, how far do you live, you know? Because in the back of my mind, I'm hearing voices that are saying, watch out for the single mom who asked for a ride home, you know? Like it's somehow this ploy and she's like, I live right down the road. So I think, okay, I can bend my rule. I can bend my rule of never riding alone in a car with a woman of the opposite sex who's not your wife. That was a rule I was taught. I said, I can bend my rule because you live right down the road. And listen, I was so nervous walking out to the parking lot here. I was so nervous that someone was going to see me and immediately assume that I was running off with this lady to Vegas and leaving Lauren here. I just, I was. Because I had been like ingrained, you never ride in a car alone with a woman unless she's your wife. I'd been ingra- it ingrained in me. I felt like I was doing something wrong. I mean, I came this close to asking the whole family to sit in the back seat. Seriously. <laughs> like, then there would be like a seat buffer, you know? It's like, it's like almost like I'm an Uber driver or something, you know? If it, someone misconstrues it, you know? I get off my shift here, and I start my shift over there, you know? But that, that's the way it was. And, and I think to myself now, I'm like, is that what Jesus would do? If Jesus saw a woman broken down on the side of I-4 with no ride home, would he pull over and say, you know, I'd love to help you out, but I have made a personal resolution not to ride alone in a car with a woman, so I'll call AAA, be warm and filled. Would he do that? Would he do that? No, no, that's not what Jesus would do. In fact, the Gospels reveal Jesus, and Jesus was scandalous, guys. Not in the bad way. He defied the status quo. Do you remember the story of the woman with the bottle of expensive perfume? Remember that story? Jesus is eating dinner in a Pharisee's house. A prostitute walks in, falls at his feet, starts weeping tears all over his feet, kissing his feet, takes this expensive bottle of perfume and dumps it all over his feet and starts wiping his feet with her hair. That ain't no side hug, folks, okay? And and this Pharisee, he jumps all over Jesus' case for allowing this woman to do that. And Jesus defends her dignity because he said, listen, dude, she's broken over her sin. She's not here to make me stumble. She's here because she knows she's broken the law and she's been forgiven and I'm her savior. So don't jam up her worship because you don't know how to worship. Jesus went right into the face of the cultural norms. And I like what Jen Wilkins said. She said, if we constantly err on the side of caution, then we constantly err. And I think that's so profound because we need to stop viewing every woman as a temptress. All right, last. 
and this one was very, very convicting, but we need to stop treating women as emotionally weaker beings who aren't capable of making rational decisions. I think a lot of times in our society, you know, uh, I, I think people are afraid to promote women because we view them as like, emo- they don't have control of their emotions and they may make decisions that aren't very productive because they're unstable and they let things get to them and they don't see the big picture. And we have all these different little cliches that are lies to hold down and depress women. And, and you know, I, I'm guilty of this, big time. I, I'm guilty of this because I, I am such a victim of my culture and I hate it and I have to repent of it daily. But, uh, but recently, my wife and I, you know, we were, we were settling on our flooring for our house. And so we were looking at vinyl flooring at Lowe's, and my wife found this color that she loved. She loved it. It was a beautiful color, and she said, out of all the colors at Lowe's, this is the only one that I want. I don't want any other color. So I went down to Lowe's, and I bought every last box of flooring they had, 67 boxes worth. That's about 2,000 pounds, okay? And I put it in the back of my truck, and my truck was like this, all the way home. It gets good here. Just hold on. So I get home and I start working on the house. The next day she comes over. Next day, she opens up a box of flooring and starts laying it around the baseboards in the kitchen. And she asked me a question. She said, do you like the flooring? I said, I do. And I kept working. Two minutes later, she asked me the same question. Do you like the flooring? I said, I was like, is this a Jedi mind trick or something? I'm like, like, yeah, I love it. I just told you. 30 seconds later, exact same question. And my heart sank because you guys know If a woman asks you if you like something three consecutive times, it means she hates it, right? That's what it means. She hates it. She hates it. You don't have to ask her opinion. She hates it. Um, And I just, I'm Mount St. Helens on her. I did. I I, I became a male bully because I've been working 18-hour days for three weeks, and I just, I turned into a male chauvinist, and I said, who picked the flooring color? (laughs) You did. Uh Who decided they didn't like the flooring color? You did. And then I, I played the chauvinist card, the sexist card, because that's what women do. They change their mind all the time, right? And I'm an idiot. I, I fully confess I'm an idiot. I had to go back and make that right. And I confessed to my wife and, 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 uh, and told her, I, I, I'm, such, I'm such a sinner, first and foremost, but I'm such a victim of my culture that I let the culture influence me. When the Bible says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and don't let that out there infect this in here. But I was being guilty of that, and it's not an excuse. I'm fully responsible for my behavior because, listen, saying that women are emotional and unable to, to make rational decisions, listen, men change their mind too. It's not a female thing. It's a human being thing. We're all double-minded. We all change our mind. We all vacillate. It's part of being a human being. But so often, we fall into these little cliches, these little misconceptions, because if we can just find a scapegoat for our anger, it'll make us feel better about ourselves. And you know what? Jesus is our scapegoat, guys. Jesus is our scapegoat. You don't need to take your anger out on women or people of other races or people poorer than you or people richer than you. Because Jesus bore the penalty for our sin and our shame. And because I wasn't captivated by an understanding of how far I have fallen before God and how unworthy I am and how, how, how frequently I change my mind. I change my mind all the time. I'd forgotten that. And so it caused me to uh, oppress my wife and fall into exactly the same thing the culture does to women today. Friends, we, we should be agents of change here. 
in this church. We should be agents of change in this culture to show society, the watching world, that women are valued, that women are our helpers. And that means they have a unique skill set that if they weren't on the world, the world would be weaker. And so we have a great responsibility to uphold and defend the dignity of women.